0: Welcome to More Than Amuse podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani
1: and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past.
0: Welcome everyone to More Than Amuse. This
1: is Sadie. And I'm Stani. And thanks for being here. It's a wonderful month and we're just happy to continue doing this every week. I know.
0: Wonderful, beautiful month of women's history. And I have found a character that I'm just very, very excited about. I don't even remember how I found her. I knew I wanted to do something that was like theater oriented because we haven't done theater. We haven't talked about Which
1: is so theater. funny because both of
0: us grew up doing theater. I know. Well, that's <laughs> what I wanted to mention. Like we became friends Because we went to the Shakespeare Festival Mm -hmm. our junior year of high school. And, like, that's when we became really close. So it is funny that we just haven't really talked about theater hardly at all. Mm -hmm. When that's, like, literally why we're friends.
1: (laughs) I know. I think the hard part is, is, like, doing theater doesn't mean you necessarily know about the historical figures of theater. True.
0: Especially when it was very much a high school Mm -hmm. career. Nothing that we seriously pursued
1: and in high school they never stop and go okay let's talk about which is weird because i feel like that would have been beneficial
0: yeah i'm actually trying to think if like i feel like there was some like education when we were like doing shows like very basic stuff though and like in junior high i think i took like theater one where we, like, talked about that, but, like, that was eighth grade. Like, that was a very long time ago.
1: I only remember talking about Shakespeare predominantly in theater classes and courses. Yeah. Um, Which makes sense, because that's such a huge part of theater history. But there's so much more to that. Like, Shakespeare's not Broadway.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. (laughs) So
1: there's, like, this whole other element of it that I don't think we ever really got, which they probably cover in college, but yeah.
0: I know. I I really want to dive into Broadway and, like, the history of American theater because I feel like that's such a super cool, like, sub-genre of history that I don't Mm. really know a lot about. This person that we're talking about, though, today is, like, from the 1600s. Ooh. um, A woman from that time period. So, I was trying to think, though, you know, usually usually we like to start these episodes off with, like, some discussion point, but is Mm -hmm. there any moment or memory you have from our good old high school theater days that comes to mind
1: I've been trying to think of one I just remember we did a Shakespeare scene together and uh, yeah I don't know I just remember really enjoying that I don't even remember what play it was from
0: I don't either I was trying to think but I have no idea
1: I think it's on the one where the lady stabs her husband
0: oh what's her what is it again Lady
1: Macbeth. Was it Macbeth? Uh, Maybe. I think, does Lady Macbeth stab Macbeth? Hold on. I'm going to Google it. Here we are. Obviously, our <laughs> high school theater knowledge. <laughs>
0: we're flexing over here.
1: But there was like a little singing part where she like sings a song because <gasps> I was going insane. And I had to come up with this little tune. And I remember oh, that every time yeah. I did it, it was different because I like <laughs> I was so nervous about singing. I forgot about that. I was probably like some type of handmaiden and you were the lady or... Yes. And then you like brushed out my hair. (laughs) Yeah. And we like had this conversation and then like the scene ended. But I remember being really nervous because the boy I liked was coming to the show and I oh. had to sing, and I, like, wanted to look really pretty, and I just really well, liked our scene. <laughs> did look pretty. Yeah. <laughs> no, our scene was really cool, because I think we both felt really confident in it, and it was super short, but, like, it was really uh-huh. fun. And that was, like, the first time we really interacted with each other, so yeah. it was enjoyable. Okay, I think
0: it was the one, was it Othello, where, like, he thinks, she knows he thinks, like, she's cheating on him, and so she, like, knows he's going to come in and kill her. Was it I that one? Maybe this is I, so bad. <laughs> Why don't we remember?
1: It might have been Othello. I think that's Othello. The plot that I'm describing. Because I don't think we
0: would have uh-huh. done
1: Macbeth. Because there's so
0: many. I like... think we did Macbeth. Like I think we did a Macbeth scene as like a group. Maybe. Uh-huh. I don't remember. I, I don't remember doing know something either. with Macbeth though that I don't know when or where that happened. But I know it did happen. So for for brief context is. We did a night of Shakespeare. That was like the very first thing we did in our advanced theater class, junior year of high school. Stani and I did a scene together. And then we went down to Cedar City, Utah for the Shakespeare Festival, where there was a Shakespeare competition
1: mm-hmm. where certain
0: people would perform their scenes to compete. And also as a group, we did a Shakespeare number Or a scene from Shakespeare. I I can't remember what what one we did that year,
1: but... I don't think I was in that one, because I was only in the advanced theater group, and that was the productions group, I think, that did that one. Okay, that makes sense. Our theater teacher always kind of got mad, because I was always, like, half in, half out of theater. Like, I never did it, like, full force. Uh But it was hard, because I didn't... I knew I wasn't going into it, so I was like, I don't really want to, like, spend all of my time, like, doing this when...
0: It was a lot of time.
1: I found it. It was Othello. I was Desdemona and you were Amelia.
0: Desdemona. Yeah. Yes. Which is a really pretty name actually. I know. If it is. I, I would have no way of finding it, but I'm like somewhere there's gotta be a picture. I know.
1: A, that would be so fun. A video of it. <laughs> Maybe I'll try and find like the old theater Facebook page and see if there was anything. I from know it. that's what I was like just the yeah. like someone <laughs> had to have posted there. the pictures. But yeah, our scene was Act three, scene four, I'm pretty sure. Um, cool. I found it on like Spark Notes. So love Spark Notes. <laughs> yep. But yeah, that's what we did. and it, it was really fun. We didn't get chosen to compete at Shakespeare Festival at all but it's fine but it was okay <laughs> but, but think about it
0: the, the domino effect of us becoming friends and now here we are mm-hmm. doing more than amused podcast yeah which is great
1: and the Shakespeare <laughs> Festival I think was in a lot of ways more fun because we didn't have to do anything so we kind of just got oh. to go hang out <laughs> oh yeah we just got to go down
0: watch some shows <laughs> yeah. go to some theater workshops together
1: we room together great mm-hmm. times it was really fun so yeah that's kind of theater memories. <laughs> I don't know. All of my, the people
0: I keep in touch from high school, besides one f- friend, Kiana, I, I, they're all it's all just because of high school. I mean, well, the, all because of theater. So yeah, I originally.
1: The ones that I pay most attention to are the ones that I knew from theater as well. Yeah, it was like a pretty, I guess when you spend that much time with people. There are some connections that form. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would recommend theater in high school. I think it was fun. I know. I know. Even if like Just, you're like, not super serious about it. don't Well, I feel
0: like especially like, you know, I as a, as a teenager is I was I was angsty. I was depressed and theater was a nice sanctuary, you know, mm-hmm. where I knew that those people there were going to be really nice to me and it was always a great time. It really was. It was fun. Okay, well, the person that we are talking about today is actually an English playwright, and she was the first English woman to earn her living by her writing. And her name is Afra Ben Bain. Afra Bain. Okay, because Bain is spelled B-E-H-N. Think that's oh. Bain. So super cool. She was a p- playwright, a poet, a translator, and a fiction writer from the Restoration era. Um, a really cool, yeah, honestly, I'm just so excited to talk about her because I feel like so a lot of the women that I've been like finding lately have so much like mystery surrounding them, like with Tamra D'Olympica, Nora mm-hmm. Holt, and now Aphra Bain. I am not doing it on purpose, but I just, I randomly find these women and then go down this rabbit hole of just being like, they were so scandalous at the time. And what is going on? So I'm really excited to kind of talk about her controversy and- kind of where
1: her life took her are you attracted to scandal Sadie I am attracted to scandal (laughs) you keep choosing people with scandalous pasts I
0: know I'm trying to like live vicariously through them (laughs) because I'm just living my very not boring life I live a very nice life but (laughs) a very non-scandalous life for sure funny so essentially though she broke cultural barriers definitely served as like a liter- literary role model for later generations of women authors and virginia Woolf, there's actually a quote um from virginia Woolf's a room of one's own and it says all women together ought to let flowers fall upon the tomb of Bin, which is most scandalous scandalously but rather appropriately in westminster abbey for it was she who earned them the right to speak their minds you know No big deal. (laughs) So for a very brief state of the arts here, as far as like what the restoration era is and what she was existing in. So the restoration, it was the restoration of the Stuart monarchy um, in the kingdoms of England, Scotland, and Ireland. Ireland? (laughs) In (laughs) Ireland, um, which took place starting in 1660 when King Charles II returned from exile in Europe. Um, I didn't really get into why he was in exile and all of that, that is just a lot of history that I did not want to take up too much time for. But essentially, he came back from exile in Europe. And um, some contemporaries of that time described that restoration as a divinely ordained miracle um, because right before he came out, there was like political chaos. It was apparently like unexpected deliverance from that chaos interpreted as like a restoration of kind of the natural and divine order. But because of this, a lot of things were happening culturally where theaters actually reopened. So I'm assuming that the king before them, they had closed the theaters and like Puritanism kind of lost its momentum. Mm -hmm. So I think it was like suddenly it was like, okay for people to be performing and to be laughing and to like, you know, just I don't know, like body comedy kind of became a very big genre. and. In addition to this, during this time is women were allowed to perform on the stage commercially as professional actresses for the very first time. Wow, that's a big deal. I know. And so, like I said, this comedy became a, like flourished and it mm-hmm. was like the f- and apparently the favorite favorite setting was the bedchamber. So, course. of course, <laughs> so, like bedroom sexually-
1: comedy, <laughs> <I> know,
0: <right? laughs> like sexually explicit language is encouraged by the king personally and just by the style of his court. And then here's a good quote um, that I found about it that says the best known fact about the restoration drama is that it is immoral. The dramatists did not criticize the accepted morality about gambling, drink, love and pleasure generally or try like the dramatists of our own time to work out their own view of character and conduct. What they did was, according to their respective inclinations, to mock at all restraints. Some were gross. Others did delicately improper the dramatists did not merely say anything they liked they also intended to glory in it and shock those who did not like it they were trying to be shocking um and then the audiences included of course aristocrats but also servants and like the middle class people um and these playgoers were very attracted to the comedies and also like a lot of the um the plays were like contemporary, like it would almost like be obviously about like political things that were happening or with characters in the, like yeah, like characters that they were familiar with, if that makes sense. Wow, and yeah, so it was cool, and of course, like I said, this was the introduction to professional actresses and kind of like the rise of like
1: celebrity actors. So that's so weird to think about, like that that's where it began. I know right and that like because now actors are always put
0: on such like a a pedestal of like celebrity and fame that it's like so weird to like even realize that it hasn't always been that way by default you
1: know yeah that there was a time period when actors like weren't so acclaimed and famous and like looked and sought after
0: yeah almost like a working class type thing (laughs) that's so strange I know that's cool but yeah so that all happened in the restoration era which I feel like was like the perfect ground for a woman playwright to Mm -hmm. you know kind of step forward to becoming professional but also with the more like scandalous immoral things that it was normal for people to write about she pretty much just jumped into that so here comes our woman of the week which is Afra Bain Bain I ugh. I'm just going to say Bane. I'm so sorry if I'm pronouncing it right. But I listened to a couple YouTube videos and that's what they all said. (laughs) Okay. So interesting thing, though, about her life is no one really knows where she was born or where she came from. But there are a lot of theories. I think she was born in like 1640 or that was just her baptism date, you know, was 1640, December Mm -hmm. 14th. So one version of her early life is that she was born to a barber named John Amis and his wife, Amy. Um, and she's occasionally referred to as Afra Amos Bain. Another story has her born to a couple named Cooper. Um, there's a certain, like the histories and the novels of the late ingenious Mrs. Bain states that Bain was born to Bartholomew Johnson, a barber and Elizabeth Denham, a wet nurse. I think that's the most widely accepted biography. Mm-hmm. um but there's also apparently there's a colonel a colonel thomas culpepper the only person who claimed to have known her as a child wrote that she was born at sturry or canterbury to a mr johnson and that she was she had a sister named francis uh, but another contemporary her whose name was anna finch wrote that Bain was born in kent and she was the daughter to a barber so that kind of points back to the original, you know, the Bartholomew Johnson, who is a barber. Anyways, basically, there's just like so many different versions and no one really knows who her parents were or where she came from. So which is interesting. Yeah. Um, she was born during the buildup of the English Civil War. So there's a lot of political tensions at that time. And so... One version of her story was her traveling with Bartholomew Johnson to a very small English colony um, of Suriname, which is in South America, and apparently, like, she lived there, was there for a time. Um, he, her father, her supposed father, I guess, um, was said to have died on that journey to there, and then his wife and child, aka Afra, um, spent some months in the country But there's not really any evidence of this, but it's kind of accepted that that's what happened. However, that like trip to Suriname was actually pretty significant because during this trip, um, she says that she met an African slave leader whose story formed the basis of one of her most famous works, Arunoko, which I'll talk a lot about the significance of that book later. Mm -hmm. And also apparently... It's rumored that she acted as a spy in the colony, but there's just like nothing to verify any one story. So there's just a lot of different versions of what could have happened that's cool. in her early life. So, you know, that's fun. We love the mystery.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and
0: apparently there was a biographer um, named Janet Todd who noted that Bane... Quote, has a lethal combination of obscurity, secrecy, and staginess, which makes her an uneasy fit for any narrative, speculative, or factual. She is not so much a woman to be unmasked as an unending combination of masks, which Ooh. I think is a really cool quote. Like, yeah, an unending combination of masks. I just love that phrase so much. That's awesome. So, like I said, we don't really know a ton about her early life, but there's a lot of theories some more crazy than others, obviously, but I'm pretty sure it's pretty confirmed that she was in that colony for a period of time. Um, and that did go on to, you know, like I said, influence her work. Mm -hmm. So though shortly after her, I guess, supposed return to England from Suriname in 1616, 1664, um, she may have married, That's what my sources have told me, that she may have married a Johan Ben, but he died or the couple separated soon after. Um, However, from this point is when she used Mrs. Bain as her professional name.
1: Okay. So. So she probably married someone? Yeah, mm -hmm. she probably
0: married someone, which is where she got that last name, but they, he either died, which I'm pretty sure it's assumed that he did die pretty soon after they did get married. Yeah. So. Which is very sad. That is sad. I don't really know all these, like, political titles and exactly what it all means. But she was a monarchist. And she definitely was on the favor of the Stuarts, which, you know, it was the restoration of the Stuarts. So She was very politically active, essentially. And she was very dedicated to King Charles II, who, you know, was put back into party. And in 1666 is, I think, when she became particularly attached to the court. Um, So during this time, 1665, 1666, there was the second Anglo-Dutch war that had broken out between England and the Netherlands, and she was recruited as a political spy on behalf of King Charles II. Wow. I know. And apparently this is pretty much like the first well-documented account we have of her activities. So at the very least, we know that she was definitely a political spy for King Charles II.
1: That's such a cool thing to know though. Like I know. Out like, of all the speculation, <laughs> at least we know she was a spy.
0: <laughs> I know, right? Like we like yeah, we can confirm like the most like crazy thing that I would probably assume to be not true. I know. Which is great. That's awesome. <laughs> So her code name is said to have been Astria, um, which was a name that she later published many of her writings. So she like had a mission, which is like a it's like a cool spy mission where like her role was to establish like a connection with a William Scott, who was supposed to be like a spy within the English service. um, And she was kind of supposed to flip him so that he would be a double agent. But... But I don't think she was very successful, and there's evidence that he betrayed her to the Dutch. So I, I guess she wasn't able to complete her mission as a spy. That was her goal. But what's interesting is, so her mission, I guess, was not very profitable. And the cost of living, like, she didn't have enough to cover. So she had to, like, pawn her jewelry in order to, you know, have enough money to survive. And King Charles was really, really slow in paying her. And it's very possible that he actually didn't pay her at all for his ser- her service for the court, which caused her to have to take out a loan so that she could even return to London. That's and stupid. then I know. Right. And apparently she spent a year of petitioning to Charles for payment, but it was unsuccessful. You can't just hire I, a spy and then not pay them. <laughs> I know. And so I don't know, like, what grounds he had for that. Maybe like because she was unsuccessful. I have no idea but she never got paid for it and so a warrant was issued for her arrest for like debtor's prison because she was never able to pay back that loan there's no evidence that she actually served time that she went to prison but like it's kind of known that she did like it's yeah considered that she probably did go to prison for it but there's not technically any record of it so we don't know for sure if she actually did serve time in prison because of her debts that's ridiculous Which is, i know i'm like she was a spy but then they didn't pay her so she had to take out a loan and then they ended up arresting her because she had to take out a loan even though the king was supposed to pay her
1: like Like, go to the king
0: (laughs) i know i i don't understand it even a little bit but that's crazy i mean i guess there's just one chapter of like i said it just a very interesting interesting life (laughs) yeah at this point obviously she's pretty desperate she doesn't have a husband and because of her debt, she began She began to work for the King's Company and the Duke's Company Players as a scribe, which were just theater companies at the time. So up to that point in her life, she had written poetry. Okay, so basically she's recorded to have written before she, like, adopted all of this debt, right? So, but once she was, like, very in need, she kind of started working more frantically. There's a quote from John Palmer, said in a review of her works that Mrs. Bain wrote for a livelihood, playwriting was her refuge from starvation and from a debtor's prison. So, this is definitely like a turn kind of like from desperation. Um, Like I mentioned, the theaters had been closed before, but they now were reopening under Charles II, and so plays were enjoying a revival. So, like I said, she was working for this company and writing plays, Um, and her first play, The Fork, marriage was staged in 1670 followed by the amorous prince um and then after her third play which was called the dutch lover that failed apparently critics just really didn't like it she kind of falls off public record for three years it's speculated that she went traveling again or maybe that she was working as a spy again we don't really know for sure but after those three years she came back she started writing comedies um which proved to be a lot more commercially successful mm-hmm. and her most popular work included a play called The Rover. And I'm going to get into her like actual work a little bit later but th- you know this is just the brief biography here. Yeah. In all she ends up writing and staging 19 plays and was is one of became one of the first prolific high profile female dramatists in Britain. During the 1670s and 1680s she was one of the most productive playwrights um, second only to like the poet um, laureate John Dryden. Hmm. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, she ended up dying April 16th in 1689. She was buried in the east coast of Westminster Abbey. And the inscription on her tombstone reads, Here lies a proof that wit can never be defense enough against mortality.
1: Oh, wow. I know. Right? That's kind of a sad tombstone. I know. I'm like, oh, couldn't they have written but like, "Here I... lay the first female playwright that gained fame," instead of like, "Well, guess yeah. she wasn't witty enough to defeat death." Like, but okay. I guess it is
0: a testament to the fact that she was very witty. Is the fact yeah. that On her tombstone is like she was so known for her wit that the joke was like, even her wit that was so strong it couldn't couldn't pass death I guess Hmm. which
1: was interesting
0: and apparently she's quoted to saying that she leads a life dedicated to pleasure and poetry
1: oh cute I like that I I like it too
0: okay so I'm gonna dive into her works and kind of how she was seen in the public eye because it's so interesting so like I mentioned her very first play was the forced marriage i I think i said forked marriage but it's definitely forced marriage (laughs) um it's like spelled f-o-r-c apostrophe d marriage so the forced the forced marriage whatever (laughs) anyways but it's a romantic tragic comedy on arranged marriages that was staged by the duke's company in september of 1670 um, the performance ran for six nights, which is actually regarded as a really good run, considering mm-hmm. that was, she was an unknown author. And that was her you know, very first show. Six months later, her play The Amorous Prince was successfully staged. Again, um, she used the play to comment on the harmful effects of arranged marriages, which I think is cool that she was like making statements with her yeah. plays. And apparently she did not hide the fact that she was a woman and said she definitely made a point of the fact that she was a woman playwright. Which is, you know, I think is amazing. Mm-hmm. So in 1673, the Dorset Garden Theater staged the Dutch Lover, which critics like sabotage. They did not like it. And apparently they, they sabotaged it on the grounds that the author was a woman. And what's cool is she like faced those critics pretty head on. And she argued that women had been held back by their unjust exclusion from education, not their lack of ability. So she definitely fought against these critics and kind of said no. Like, Gotta it's, love early
1: feminism. I Love it I so much. I know. <laughs>
0: like, that's what I think is so cool to, like, see mm-hmm. these characters being here. But, you know, like I said, because that play did not do so well, she did end up taking three years off. But after those three years, she came back and published four plays in pretty close succession. So 1676, she published Lazar, I think. Yep. The Town Fop and The Rover. Hmm. So that's cool. 1678, there was Sir Patient Fancy. That was published. And this succession of box office successes led to frequent attacks on her. She was attacked for her private life. The morality of her plays was questioned. And she was accused of plagiarizing the rover, which is her most famous one. Um, And apparently she countered all of these public attacks um, in the prefaces of her published plays, which I think is cool. Mm -hmm. Like in like the book that you would read, there is like her arguments against all of her criticism. That's Um, awesome. Yeah, apparently in the preface to Sir Patient Fancy. She argued that she was being singled out because she was a woman, while male playwrights were free to live the most scandalous
1: lives and write body plays. Yeah. I gotta say, it's, like, very telling that they, like, attacked her for all these things and then when it got to, like, her most famous work, they were like, well, she obviously like, stole this one. I know, (laughs) right? And it's just... (laughs) Oh, okay. So when a woman finally accomplishes something that you can't criticize based on anything else, you just are like, well, it's obviously not hers then. Hers.
0: <laughs> yeah, which I think is crazy. It's like the first line of attack was like, oh, it's too immoral and it's too mm-hmm. this and this and this. And then all of a sudden it flips to, well, it's not her. And it's yeah. Like, you can't, you can't argue both. It's one or the other. Like, yeah, either all of her plays are scandalous or not. And or, you know, or it's just actually her. We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists.
1: I actually ran across a TikTok of this girl who does these cool, like, slightly abstract paintings of um, mainly women. But they're really cool. They're, um, oh, yeah, she calls herself a semi-abstract artist. I guess I was right. But it's, like, these women, and a lot of the times they're, like, um there's like deep emotional meaning behind all of the paintings that she does but I really like her TikToks because she just basically puts the paper up on her wall and then just paints right then and there and like shows the process of it and it's really mm-hmm. cool so she's on Instagram as well um her name is Jacqueline Dubois and her account handle is art of J So it's A-R-T-O-V, oh, not O-V, O-F, gosh, do I know (laughs) the alphabet? Um, J-Q-W-E-L-L-I-N. And I actually was totally going to buy a print, but she sold out. No! (laughs) Because I love them that much. I think they're really, really cool. Um, uh, A recent one she did is um, she looked at, like, the what's it called like a rendering of what women's breasts actually look like like the glands and everything in them and it actually looks like flowers which is really cool so she did like a painting based on that and then she's done a couple based on like depression or like hope um these are beautiful yeah they're just really cool um they are nudes but it's not like graphic in any way Um, like I said it's semi-abstract so even though the people aren't wearing any clothes it's not like I don't think you'd have to be embarrassed if a child saw it yeah Um, (laughs) just a little content warning for anyone there if they're worried about that but yeah they're just really really beautiful and she's also talked a lot recently about how she would she gave up on painting for a while and now it's like going really well for her so,
0: Aw, that's so good.
1: Yeah, so even though she's sold out so much that I can't even get a print, I'm just going to bring more attention to her so it's even harder for me to get one.
0: <laughs> no, I love it, though. That's but, yeah,
1: <laughs> and they're affordable. Her prints are only $25, I think, from what I've seen.
0: Oh, um, that's nice.
1: And they're small, but... Uh, they're beautiful, though. They're really, really beautiful. So, yeah, I think she's a great um option if you want something meaningful and pretty um but maybe not that would bring break the bank to be able to actually own her bio says that
0: prints are coming late April
1: yes so so there we go (laughs) so there's hope eventually that they'll come back (laughs) eventually but yeah they're really really cool
0: cool I love that so the person that are not this not the person I guess the community that I want to highlight is the Instagram is we are she writes and as a woman songwriter I am very a fan of organizations who are there to promote women producers songwriters and engineers so I mean, their account is really great to follow because they will just talk about, you know, what it's like being as a woman songwriter in, in the music industry. If you follow us on Instagram this last week, I actually reposted someone to our story because mm-hmm. it just I really love it. Talks about um, like the boys club that is sometimes still very painfully obvious in the yes. world of the music industry. Um, but yeah, apparently you can like they host all women writing camps. Um, which is really, really cool. And apparently it's something that you can like apply to and you can apply at any time. So if there's any woman songwriter producer who is looking for something to be a part of, um, it's, I know they have a goal to be a very all inclusive, you know, there's opportunity for Mm -hmm. people who are wanting to write more. I'm thinking, I'm like, man, maybe I should actually apply for this because this is amazing. So yeah, check
1: them out again. The account is we are, she writes. I think it's just so cool, like, how many communities there are that are really trying to mm-hmm. um, just draw awareness to it more than anything and then um, help with a lot of the problems that are still out there. Oh, and just a little reminder, very quickly, um, something really cool uh, that's happening right now is Hall Rockefeller that we actually had on the podcast is doing a cool oh, little yeah. series for Women's History Month where she's talking about all the different movements throughout art and a uh, female that could be associated with it. Um, Mm -hmm. I think she's calling it an alternative history of art, but it's really cool. It's super educational. I've been really enjoying it. And so if any of you out there are like very um, visual art history lovers, uh, check out what she's doing right now for this whole month. It's really amazing. Um, And just a reminder, her handle is all.the.lady.artists and her organization is called Less Than Half. So
0: Yeah. And go back and listen to our interview with her because it was really good and she feel like I
1: learned so much from her in just our hour conversation. So Mm -hmm. no, she's amazing. She has like a masters in art history. Yeah. And has been working full time on this project and um and different things highlighting females and women in the art. So check it out. It's awesome. All right, now back to the show.
0: What I think is so crazy too is like even Because, you know, when I was reading about the Restoration era, it was aside from talking about Aphra Bane and it talks about how characteristically it was very common for the theater and these plays to be like immoral. Right. Mm -hmm. And to talk about these immoral things. So it's not like she was the only one who was writing plays like that.
1: No, it's like what was popular at the time.
0: Yeah, it was popular. And so that's what she was writing. And kind of like she points out, she feels like she felt like she was only being singled out because she was a woman, whereas the men were allowed to live, you know, however they wanted. It kind of like makes me think of even just like today with like women pop stars, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Where it's like
0: all the men are allowed to be like the playboys and, you know, maybe flaunt their money. But as soon as a woman does it, it's very threatening and... I, I, I
1: immediately go to Taylor Swift because, yeah. of course. But, you know. Yeah. No, I think also it kind of fits with, like, if a Saturday Night Live sketch or something written by a woman was, like, more heavily critiqued for being, like, raunchy or something like that. Oh, when, yeah. like, that's literally what all of them are. Like, that's like kind they're... of the same yeah, humor that's level. that's a good
0: point. I'm trying to think of, like, I don't really know much about, like, playwrights to know. But, like, you know, Taylor Swift has made the point of, like, I write songs about my exes and I'm the only one whose dating life is on display. Meanwhile, Ed Sheeran, Bruno Mars, all of her pop music contemporaries, Mm -hmm. they were all, you know, writing about their own personal life. So it's interesting when women are put on different pedestals than their male counterparts because it happens.
1: It happens all the time. It's like different expectations Mm -hmm. that like no one's really willing to admit are based on gender, but very obviously are. And I find it so interesting that it's like
0: moral expectations like women are expected to be better and more moral whereas it's like oh it's a, it's expected for men to act this way yeah. which is like also detrimental to men you know <laughs> yep. like do we have no expectations for the men in our society that we just expect them to have these scandalous imm- quote unquote immoral lives but then when a woman does it it's suddenly very offensive.
1: Yeah, especially back in that day, like, they expected women to be pure until marriage, but mm-hmm. the men were expected to go out and figure it all out beforehand yeah. so that they were experienced and worldly and, like, knew what to do. And it's just, like, that's a very twisted yeah, concept of, like, okay – Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) like it's, it's crazy that these like double standards and like the boys will be boys sentiment Mm -hmm. exists even in the 1680s. Yeah. Which kind of shows like how deeply rooted Mm -hmm. a lot of these lenses that we view other people and other groups. Like it's rooted very, very deep.
1: Exactly. And I think a lot of people probably have a hard time talking about feminism because they're like, it's 2021. Like, come on, we're pretty equal now. But if you look at the structure that's there and like how long it's been around Like, obviously, Mm -hmm. this is so deeply rooted a problem that it's still happening Mm -hmm. today. The fact that we all know the phrase boys will be boys.
0: Oh, yeah. And like knowing that that that.
1: same like mentality existed clear back in the 1600s in a completely different country. And somehow it still carried its way over. So it, it just kind of shows that like this is still obviously an issue. And it was a huge problem then. And it's still a huge problem now
0: absolutely so yeah let's hold let's hold the men in our society to the same level that we hold the women yeah because come
1: on or just we hold can... the women to the same level as the men and give them that's some true slack. <laughs> <laughs> either one you... works just make it equal <laughs> yeah.
0: you pick either we let women be a little bit more immoral or we start expecting Making more men from our more men or <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> just even it out <laughs> yeah for
0: real however we do it we gotta even that playing ground but yeah so i thought that was super crazy um so by the late 1670s she was among the leading playwrights of england her plays were staged frequently and attended by the king um and the rover which i mentioned which was what people thought she was plagiarizing um became the favorite at the king's court which is just really interesting and apparently around this time too she became even more heavily involved in the political debate because king charles ii had no heir um and so there was kind of like a quote unquote mass hysteria here as to who should replace that king. And so, because of that, political parties developed. Um, and apparently, there was a political party named the Whigs who wanted to exclude. Oh, yeah. They wanted. To, so, the suggested king was the. Should be replaced with his Roman Catholic brother, James. So, that was who they thought should be the um, successor. Mm -hmm. The Whigs wanted to exclude James while the Tories did not believe succession should be alerted in any way, altered in any way. Um, So Charles II was eventually dissolved in Cavalier Parliament. That is it. And James II succeeded him in 1685. So she supported that position. Mm -hmm. Um, And in two years between 1681 and 1682, she produced five plays to discredit the Whigs. And apparently, like, the London audience were mainly in agreeing, like agreement with her politically. Um, so they attended these plays in large numbers. But apparently, she was arrested la- later on the order of King Charles II when she used one of the plays to attack James Scott, Duke of Monmouth, who was the illegit- illegitimate son of the king.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Which is interesting. So apparently, she was, like... Very politically active, which I think was cool. And I think it's cool that she was able to use her art medium to make statements on that. And Mm -hmm. that she was willing to do that even if it got her in trouble. Yeah.
1: No, that's really cool. She was making statements. I know. like (laughs) Bold. Cool person. Yeah. Especially like in a country where if you don't like the monarch, they could literally just like kill you. <laughs> like, right? <laughs> like it's even bolder then. Cause nowadays if people do it, it's like, oh whatever, free speech. But like
0: those rights know. aren't
1: protected. Yeah. He's like, You insulted my son. I'm gonna have you arrested. Like <laughs> I
0: know. And and another thing is too, is like I've realized that I totally always like the idea of like feminism or like a woman um, like using her voice. I very incorrectly just assumed that women didn't exist like that in like the sixteen seventeen hundreds right mm-hmm. Because you don't really hear about it. You don't hear about those stories. So I really just love hearing the story and hearing all the ways that she was politically active and mm-hmm. also like would stand up for herself against critics. And would point out that, like, the discrepancies was because she was a woman. Like, I just yeah. think it's, like, really cool and nice to see that, that I was wrong in that way to assume that they weren't there. Because, of course, they were there. Yeah. Know?
1: It's also crazy to me, like, if you look back throughout history and you find people like this that have been fighting against, like, uh, sexism for, like, the longest time. And it's like, wow, like... This has been a very long battle. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it's been pretty much since the beginning of history that we have women that were trying to defy, like, gender norms. norms. And it's interesting that, like, it still is something that has to be fought
0: about. I know. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. So,
0: moving on. So, apparently, theater stages um, and, like, the audience to theater works eventually started to decline. Um and they and theaters started to mainly just perform old works to kind of save on cost and save on mm-hmm. money. During that time, though, she was able to publish one play called *The Lucky Chance* in 1686. Um, and in response to the criticism leveled at the play, she articulated a long and passionate defense of women writers which is cool. Her play, the emperor of the moon was published and staged in 1687. And that became one of her longest running plays. So I think that's cool that even in the time that the theater world mainly maybe wasn't as profitable, that she still was able to find success with new original works, mm-hmm. which is, is a testament to, you know, how good they were. But eventually she stopped writing plays and turned her prose to, and turned to prose fiction Um, And I guess today she's more widely known for her novels she wrote in the later part of her life. Um, So her first novel was a three-part love letters between a nobleman and his sister. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Published between 1682 and 1687. These novels were inspired by a contemporary scandal which saw Lord Grey elope with his sister-in-law, Lady (sighs) Henrietta Berkeley. So kind of going back to she had... She was not afraid to comment, obviously,
1: on the you know the scandals at yeah. that time. I mean, at least it was a sister-in-law and not a sister. Yeah, I know. Thank, <laughs> you, thank goodness. <laughs> but at the oh, time still of that, rep- <laughs> I know still like obviously a scandal. <laughs> by his sister-in-law,
0: he ended up eloping with her. But at the time of publication, that it was very popular and went through s- more than sixteen editions. Wow, which is crazy, and apparently. Her work is critically acknowledged now as having been a very important part of the development of the English novel, which goes to her last book. So I mentioned when she was like in South America, um, mm-hmm. apparently in South America, um, she it inspired a novel that she wrote, Ar- Ar- Arunoko. And like I said, that was she wrote that in 1688, which was less than a year before her death. So it's it's called Orunoko or the Royal Slave and it's the story of the enslaved Orunoko and his love Imowinda and it was based you know like I said on her travels um, 20 years earlier and this novel became her greatest success. This novel essentially she kind of gives herself the position of narrator as the first biographer and so this is kind of where it's like accepted that she was the daughter of the lieutenant general of Suriname. That's what she writes as in the story. But of course, there's not very much evidence of that case. And there's no evidence that the person she's writing about in this story is a real person. But she definitely like writes along about a slave re- revolt. And she writes about it as if it really did happen. In 1696, It what, this book was adapted for the stage by Thomas Southern, And it was very famously performed throughout the 18th century and then in 1745 the novel was translated into French that went through seven French editions and as abolitionism kind of gathered around and like started picking becoming a more popular movement around the late 18th century the novel was celebrated as the very first anti-slavery novel. Wow. Which is like another just like cool way of just like women affecting history in ways that we have no idea that suddenly this play this novel that became a play that became performed which apparently was a very anti-slavery story you know I feel like art really has a way of affecting cultures and maybe like touching people and opening their eyes to things that they maybe haven't seen so Mm -hmm. you know you wonder if this story what its effect really had on it but like I said it's credited as the first anti-slavery Novel, like famous anti-slavery novel, which that's is awesome, crazy. Oh, another another cool thing. I'm I'm just talk about a little bit more about this play. So, like I said, that's definitely her most like in the eyes of like literary scholars. I think that's the book that is put on you know a pedestal something that's cool is it is credited as the precursor to Jean-Jacques Rousseau's discourses on inequality. And Hmm. I think I mentioned it, my husband, he's in grad school for political theory and reads a lot of philosophy. And so as I was doing research, I was like, oh, do you know this book, Discourses on Inequality? And he just like came over and like handed me the copy. And he's like, of course, I know this book, like this is a big (laughs) deal book. And I was like, the lady I'm, like, researching, her novel that was anti-slavery inspired it, which I thought was, like, crazy. That's awesome. So, I, just a cool way of just, like, women inspiring people in ways that we just don't even know that this... Like, we I don't know a lot about Rousseau, granted, but he wrote something called Discourses on Inequality, which was apparently partially inspired by this novel, which is amazing. That's awesome. I know. Okay. So as far as her legacy though, so after her death in 1689, apparently her literary work was marginalized and often just dismissed outright. I mean, like I mentioned, there were a lot of publications that went on, but I think as her as an author, they, people did not like it until like the mid 20th century. Bain was repeatedly dismissed, dismissed as a morally deprived minor writer. Um, and in the 18th century, her literary work was scandalized as lewd by like it listed a number of critics who just were not a big fan of her writing. And apparently Alexander Pope, who was a very famous poet, mm-hmm. um, says the stage, how loosely does Astria tread, who fairly puts all characters to bed? Don't know exactly what that means, but
1: apparently it's an insult. So it kind of people- sounds like he's making like a sexual joke yeah but in like old timey English languages are <laughs> I know <laughs>
0: i I don't know, but yeah, and there's another in the nineteenth century, there was a bunch of other critics and like scholars who all decided that her writings were unfit to read because they were corrupt and deplorable, hmm. which like my thing is too, is like even with Shakespeare, like he obviously writes about scandalous evil things and like plots that don't make sense, so like Why can we read Shakespeare, but then when it comes to a woman writing those things? Or who knows? Maybe
1: her plays are really that horrifying. I doubt it. (laughs) I doubt it, too. That's really interesting and funny. Mm -hmm. I don't know. With all the stuff we read in high school, it's funny that there's banned books.
0: I know. Well, like, yeah. like I feel like a lot of the stories we've read, it's like, this is a weird plot. Or like, this is a weird story. So... I thought that was really interesting that it's like even though she was so successful in her life that like there was no one really to continue her legacy and that anyone who would have had the chance like very outrightly just was, nope, shutting that down. But in the 1970s though, her work apparently was kind of reevaluated by feminist critics and writers and she was kind of rediscovered as a very significant female writer by a list of women i'm going to read them all Mm -hmm. because they deserve the credit but there's maureen duffy angeline garot ruth perry hilda lee smith maura ferguson jane spencer dale spender elaine hobby and janet todd so apparently they're credited for kind of rediscovering her and kind of pushing her and that ended up leading to the reprinting of her works so the rover was republished in 1967 arunoko was republished in 1973 love letters between a nobleman and his sisters was published again in 1987 and then the lucky chance was reprinted in 1988 which is i think i think it's cool that like you can very much see the work that these female critics was feminist critics were doing in the 70s actually ended up being a very worthy thing and actually led to these books and works of writing being reprinted which i think is amazing yeah that's awesome and apparently Montagu Summers, who was an author of scholarly works on the English drama of the 17th century, she published a six-volume collection of her work in hopes of rehabilitating her reputation. Um, and I guess she was very fiercely passionate about the work of Bain and found herself incredibly devoted to the appreciation of 17th century literature. So shout out to Montagu Summers. Apparently, she did an amazing work to helping Afro Bain be more celebrated, which I think is amazing. Yeah,
1: that's awesome.
0: Um, And then there's one man who wrote about her in a positive light. His name is Felix Schelling. um, And he wrote in the Cambridge history of English literature that, quote, she was a very gifted woman compelled to write compelled to write for bread in an age in which literature catered habitually to the lowest and most depraved of human inclinations and that her success depended on her ability to write like a man, which I thought was really interesting. And then another critic whose name was Alison Conway views Bain as an instrument as instrumental to the formation of modern thought around the female gender and sexuality. Another quote, she says, Bain wrote about these subjects before the technologies of sexualities we now associate were in place, which Mm -hmm. is in part why she proved so hard to situate in the trajectories most familiar to us. So Mm. just really interesting. I think it's really cool that you can actually see a time where there were people who suddenly were like, nope. This is an amazing writer who was very famous in her days, who deserves praise. So yeah, let's let's do it. And it ended up to her works being reprinted.
1: Definitely, so I think that's I think amazing. like we always talk about how could people be so famous and then be so mm-hmm. forgotten. And I think like especially in this story, I've realized how much it's just like men are writing the history books. Yes, so they get to put in who they think is important. And regardless of, like, fame or acclaim or anything else that people received during their time period, um, if the people writing the history books weren't looking at it subjectively, then they were able to write whatever they wanted. And that partially, I think, the reason that the painters and the authors and playwrights that are so famous today from those time periods, it's just because that's who the people that were writing decided to write about.
0: Yeah. Well, and even, too, like, if in the eyes of the other prominent men playwrights or poets at the time they were degrading her and you know not writing positive things about her if a historian years later is going back and reading all those things they're going to assume that maybe those are true right yeah that Mm -hmm. she doesn't deserve to be taken seriously that her work is this and and you're right like it is subjective and it is viewed from the lens of the time so it's like, you have to take that into consideration. Like, why was she getting this criticism? And was it actually fair?
1: Yeah. No, no definitely. And it's like, I don't know. It makes me so much more interested in history in general. If, like, yeah. if there was a way to kind of ignore what's considered like popular or well-known and be able to go back and find more of these hidden people, I feel like it would paint yeah. a better picture of what the world was actually like.
0: Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like I mentioned, like when I think of the 1600s, I don't think of a woman making a career as a playwright, sticking up for herself and making political statements. Yeah. Not even caring that she was going to be arrested by the king, you know? Like, yep. I don't think of that. And yet she existed. And there and probably were there. a lot others that existed. Mm-hmm. She, It's like, not, it's not like she's the only woman who was frustrated with the
1: system that she was in, yeah. you know? No, because we've talked about tons. Like, we've talked mm-hmm. about practically every woman that we have talked about was frustrated with the system. And was aware of, like, the <laughs> yeah. system she was in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really inspiring in a lot of ways to find out that you're like oh feminism runs a lot deeper than <laughs> I think I any of us were taught <laughs> so know. yeah
0: and like and in the lives of like and you can find them in every art field in mm-hmm. every time
1: period like they're in women every era yeah yeah who were who were mad about it mm-hmm. rightfully and fighting against it like openly
0: mm-hmm. so. like I love that like in the preface to her published plays she wrote some statement of like, nope, they're just criticizing me because I'm a woman and the men playwrights don't get the same criticism that I'm getting. And I'm just like, like yes, that's brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. Like I, I just, feel like it's so bold and so amazing. Mm. I love it.
1: Yeah, no, it's really cool. So that's so, amazing. Yeah. There is Afra
0: Bane. I've said Ben many times, <laughs> but Afra Bane, I'm I love knowing about this person now. I am I mean, 17th century literature is not my usual wheelhouse of what I casually read. But I feel like it would be interesting to read an excerpt from hers because what a cool person.
1: Yeah, no, it would definitely be interesting. And she definitely has like quite a few works there. To pull from, which is awesome, because yeah, like as much as I loved hearing about Nora Holt, I couldn't find a single book even about her. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and with only one of her surviving um, compositions, it makes it really hard to dive into deeper about who she is. And so, I think one of the benefits with um, Bane is that she has like all of these plays and novels that we can actually read and hold and I know see. (laughs) So that's really cool. So there is Afra big fan now very cool cool name cool person I know right what was her pseudonym again is that what the cur- oh. oh yeah Astria Astria okay I like that too so that was her
0: like name when she was a spy and also apparently she later published some works under that name and I imagine it was probably some type of nickname I don't know if she also produced works under Afra or if it was just Astria I don't know, but both names are there, and like that quote from the playwright is Ash- refers to her as Astria, so yeah. maybe she was more publicly known as that. I'm
1: not sure. Watch me in the future naming all my kids after. I know, um, right? <laughs> podcast people. That's what
0: I was thinking. I'm like, Astria is kind of a cool
1: name. Or it Afra. is interesting. Yeah, I like it. Cool. Have fun. I know. What I love gathering up more people. I know. Me too. <laughs>
0: like and we've talked about it we, I, we always we've talked about at, originally we were always worried we were going to run out of people eventually but nope just the more you dig the more you find which is just a fun yeah. part of doing this
1: no like we definitely broadened the scope a lot more than we even had to because we literally mm-hmm. could have just done visual arts and music and still I know. been able to keep going for years and years and years, and years. <laughs> we're not gonna run out so yeah there'll always be more amazing women to talk about mm-hmm. which is a cool thing so many cool yeah. stories definitely my kids are gonna be so well educated so well-rounded
0: my kids are going to know so many amazing women.
1: Yeah, to we'll be like, oh, you learned about in shape. You learned about Shakespeare in cool in school. Awesome. Today we're learning about Afra Bain. Take a seat. Yeah. <laughs> Here is her plate now. <laughs> yes. Oh, you learned about Mozart. Let's have a seat. We're going to learn about his sister.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now let's discuss the implications on why we don't talk about her and maybe what <laughs> happened in her life and the
1: societal implications of that yeah and then my kids will be super annoying in school when they're like this and they raise their hand well actually there was a female Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh man but yeah that's what we should all strive for right like let's just talk about them more then it doesn't have to be such a a thing thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed learning more about her if you are
0: enjoying the podcast definitely subscribe Maybe give us a rating, share it with your yeah. friends who are also interested in learning about amazing women from history.
1: Definitely. That'd be great. And I mean, today, I mean, this month, today, today, of course, but this entire month is a great excuse to mm-hmm. um, talk more openly about this if you're enjoying it. If you feel annoying about sharing things you like, then you could be like, hey, it's International Women's Month, so, or Women's History Month, whatever. <laughs> I keep mixing those up. Yeah, so, I so, you know, like here's a podcast that talks about women in the arts and maybe there's someone out there who's been looking for something like this that you can help totally. them find it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so. thank you. Mm-hmm. Happy International Women's History Month. Definitely. I hope you are learning more about women. Yeah. In this process. And we will talk to everyone next week. Mm-hmm. Have a great week, everyone. Yep. See ya.